So why don't you grab your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah 45. In Isaiah chapter 45, um, we have seen here, you know, the Lord speaking through Isaiah the prophet, um, and he, you know, first confirmed by name the man Cyrus who had come 150 years after this prophecy was given, and the Lord named him by name, showing that God knows the future and that he knows the beginning from the end. And we've talked about how that's the Lord looking at the big parade from the sky view helicopter. You can see the front of the parade and the back of the parade. You see the whole parade. That's the Lord. We see things linearly, but God sees it all and he knows it all. Um, and that's his omniscience. Uh, but that's one of the things that we, we hear from you know, Isaiah. And he brings that out over and over again. He really wants people to know um, that God, uh, he's the God of prophecy. Uh, the future events, and he proves that beautifully. And we looked at that on our last time we were together on Wednesday night, um, there in chapters 44 and 45, but um, we didn't want to just race through the end of this chapter because there's some powerful packed verses in here. I didn't want to just quickly rush through at the end. So <clears throat> we left off now, and, and we're going to start here in verse 18. Verse 18. And it's going to jump into something that's actually kind of controversial. Uh, this verse has stirred up a controversy, uh, and it's, it's kind of unique. And, and one of the reasons, you know, you would see it is if you were a Hebrew scholar, or if you knew the Hebrew language, there's sort of a red flag that makes people uh, concerned or wonder about the idea of creation and, and what's it all about and stuff like that. Uh, there's a lot of confusion. It's like the little boy that was in the Sunday school class, and the teacher was talking about the creation and the, um, the, the animals and the Garden of Eden and the fall of man and how God drove them out of the garden and all this stuff and uh, just the, you know, the way that all went down. And then at the end of the Sunday school class, um, uh, you know, they, the teacher said, why don't you draw a picture uh, on this piece of paper uh, of something that tells you about the, the, the story of the Garden of Eden and creation. So all the kids, were, you know, but, but little Johnny, he was really intent on this. He was excited and he he drew there a car with a man and a woman sitting in the back seat, and um, there was a guy sitting in the front seat driving the car. And he finished that, and she said, you know, Johnny, that, that's a nice picture of a car, but what does it have to do with creation? And she says, well, this is God driving Adam and Eve out of the garden. <laughs> confusion about how that all went down. Well, there's still confusion, isn't there? about the Garden of Eden and the origins uh, and creation. And we could talk about a lot of things, but, but one of those things is found, and it kind of stirs up a discussion, at least here in verse 18. Let's take a look. It says, Isaiah 45, 18, for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it and he hath created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited I am the Lord, and there is none else. Now, I love this because, uh, man, we could go off, well, this could be a whole, uh, you know, conference, or, or this could be a lifetime, really, of study, this verse. Just the statement there where it says, the Lord uh, formed it to be inhabited. When he created the earth, he formed it to be inhabited. Um, what does it make to make a planet inhabitable? Well, if you're a Star Trek or Star Wars fan, you know, you, you know that there's, um, <laughs> there's some pretty big requirements. And, you know, Star Trek and, and, and Star Wars definitely uh, says there must be planets out there that are inhabitable. But in truth, we've never found anything like that. Only Earth so far in our uh, discovery as humans is inhabitable. And, and that's not a shock because if you know what is required for a planet to be inhabitable, the distance it needs to be from its star, or you know, like our sun, uh, the temperature, the oxygen level content, the atmosphere, the, the, the speed of which it spins and turns and rotates and uh, revolves, uh, all of these things have to be you know, perfect, perfect uh, for life to exist uh, on any planet. And, um, and that's why some scientists have c concluded there are no other planets, and the reason why that people could live on the reason why is there's just too many requirements that would make a, a planet uninhabitable. Uh, they, they think the odds might be too great. But then, you know, if you're an evolutionary scientist, so-called, uh, you, you're going to have to believe, well, because there must have been billions and billions of years, there must be billions and billions of chances that there's 
you know, lots of planets like the Earth. But, you know, the odds of the Earth existing are so, like one in a billion billion, uh, that you kind of wonder, are there other planets that are inhabitable? I love here, Isaiah just puts it real simply, and, and I gotta explain, I, I love science, and by the way, most Christians that are into creation science, uh, I like how the, you know, the world likes to sort of call them names and act like they're a bunch of imbeciles, but some of the great thinkers and scientists of past have been people who believe that God created the heavens and the earth, and there's, there's evidence uh, of things that, that nobody wants to admit of, uh, uh, things like a young earth, there's evidence of young earth. And man, I'm not gonna go into all that. We've done that on studies about creation versus evolution and stuff like that. But um, I love how the Bible just puts it simply. And I, I believe the Bible simply, uh, just as, as a simpleton, uh, non-scientist, uh, I love that the Bible just states, here's what happened. God created a specific planet that was meant to be inhabited. And like I said, we can talk about that one all night, but I won't. Um, but not only that, this is where it gets really kind of interesting, and this is what I want to point to, is the word vain. Um, it says there that the Lord did not create it in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. Uh, I am the Lord, just Jehovah, and there is none else. The thing that separates God from all the false gods is he's a creator, and he does something. Um, you know, Isaiah's going to hammer away at false idols and gods and what have you in the next chapter, but uh, he's saying there's no other God like Jehovah. There's a creator who did all this. But he established it, and he created it not in vain. Now, the reason that's a, a, a word that sort of strikes up controversy is because it's, it's the, the, the Hebrew word tohu, uh, like T-O-H-U, tohu, um, uh, and it's, it's a word that is kind of interesting that means desolate um, or perhaps um, uh, become desolate. Uh, and, and this is where it gets interesting because, you know, people like to try to find contradiction in the Bible. Well, if you're a Hebrew scholar, you might be able to kind of find seemingly contradiction in the Bible because here it clearly states he created it not tohu. Now, keep your finger here and go with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, of course, everybody knows that's the beginning of all things. Uh, and, um, and this is where the controversy starts to swirl a little bit. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then it says, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then, of course, all of creation is kind of spoken about after that. But interesting wording here in the, the you know, Hebrew, and it says, and the earth was without form and void. That, that idea of without form and void, it's the, that word tohu, and, and here it's to, tohu va bohu. <laughs> you say tofu va what? No, tohu va bohu. Um, and, and here's where you kind of have to understand. Here it says, and he created it, the same word that Isaiah says he did not create it. Do you understand what I'm saying? In Isaiah, our text, uh, 45, 18, it says, and he created it not to, to who. And here in Genesis 1, 1, chapter 2, it says he created it to who. Um, and so people say, contradiction first. But then you have to look at the sentences a little closer, and then you see in verse 2, it says, and the earth was without form and void. It, it was. Now, the word was is actually a poor translation there in the King James. Um, the, the word there is actually one that is, is more like it became. Uh, it, it, it was uh, sort of shifted to. So then there's this big question. People say, what happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2? Could it be that something happened? And so there's a theory out there called the gap theory. Some would argue, and uh, I think it's an interesting discussion. I'll tell you what I think here in a second about this, but that doesn't matter as much. Here's what people say could have been the deal. The gap theory suggests that in the beginning, God created the earth. It was all created, and then it became without form and void. Um, the idea is uh, tohu vabohu, which means without uh, form or you know, uh, desolate and maybe even uninhabitable. Um, and darkness, and it says, was on the earth. Darkness in what sense? Well, that's the thing. The darkness that's talked about here is the Hebrew word that's often used talking about evil darkness, not just lacking of light, 
but the idea of uh, evil uh, or darkness is suddenly on the face of the earth. So you say, wait, Brent, so something happened between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, perhaps. Uh, there's someone that say is a gap, and they could say it could be a gap of thousands of years, and that's where the dinosaurs are, and there's this big theory out there. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not totally dismissing it, but I do want to share with you why I'm not really convinced that's <laughs> exactly true. Um, but the idea here is that um, th there could be something that happened between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. Maybe it's just as simple as it was the fall of Satan. Uh, have you ever thought of when did that happen? When did Satan uh, be lifted up with pride? You know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, those books talk about the fall of Lucifer. And, and I wonder, you know, when did that happen? And some suggest it was at some point God created the heavens and the earth. Satan and his demonic, you know, entities or fallen angels, they all were hurled to the earth. And then suddenly darkness was up on the earth. And, uh, and then you got Satan down here. How did Lucifer ever get to the earth? He was on in the Garden of Eden for crying out loud. How did he get there? Um, well, somewhere that happened. And some would argue that's what happened between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. That's possible. Um, but also some would say there was a huge gap. The, the, the dinosaurs were on that age. The earth was without man. And, and then it got destroyed. That's why the dinosaurs were extinct. And then suddenly you have, um, you know, a, a recreation, as it's sort of called, where God sort of recreated. The earth became without form and void. And then God said, let there be light. There was light. And then he created the earth in sort of a recreation. That's the gap theory. Now, one of my favorite uh, writers on the book of Genesis um, is a guy named Henry Morris. And I think every Bible student should have his books in their library. Uh, one of my favorites is the Genesis record. It's kind of a commentary on the book of Genesis, and it's wonderful. Um, he died, oh, 15 or 20 years ago uh, now, if I recall, but great, great guy. Uh, but he wrote about this, and he, he, he kind of expressed how he didn't really believe the gap theory for many reasons. But I want to share with you a few um, uh, problems that, that might rise if you're going to adopt that theory. Uh, one is the gap theory tends to ignore the evidence for young earth. And, and that's, I know there's a lot of people that struggle with this one. The earth is millions and millions of years. And the reason people believe that is because they've been told that in colleges and universities and all that. But the problem is, you know, uh, there's much evidence for a more young earth and it has to do with the decay and rapid reversals, <coughs> excuse me, of the earth's magnetic field. <coughs> excuse me, uh, for the quantity of helium in the Earth's atmosphere, the amount of salt that's in the oceans, the wind-up spirals of galaxies, and many, many more uh, evidences <coughs> as to why the Earth is not as old as people. Well, Brett, what about carbon dating? Uh, they've dated things to be, uh, you know, tens of thousands of years old or 100,000 years old. Do you know how carbon dating works? Basically, um, in, in sort of goofy terms, uh, you take the carbon and you date things using the reaction of carbon to any given object. <coughs> and, um, and so if you have a, uh, you know, a rock that you believe is 20,000 years old and you um, date it with carbon dating and it says, yeah, it's 20,000 years old, how do they know that? And what, what gives them that? Well, the, the problem with carbon dating is it, you have to use something that you absolutely know its age. That's, it's, and, you know, provable apart from carbon dating so that you can use the reaction of carbon to that object as you would to the other object. And, and if, you re, if you put it on there and it redacts the same way as that, then you're the same age. But the problem is you've got to have some object that is a known age. And, and the problem, I would argue, is we don't have that. If the Earth is, is you know, less than 10,000 years or, you know, 12,000 years, whatever, you know, you as a young Earth person uh, believes the earth is much younger than people say, then um, the problem is the dating system is messed up. It's the way it, it, it's just assumed uh, that there are objects that are millions of years old. So that's, that's the problem. And I know that a lot of you scientists or people that are thinking, you know, there's, there's actually good, solid scientists. I, I, I totally admit, if you look at me and say, well, what do you know about science? I'll be the first one to admit. Uh, that I'm not a scientist, and so you're, well, why, why would you listen to you? I'm saying that there's great, brilliant scientists that are saying evolution is wrong, and we've got to come up with a, some other theory about how things were, uh, you know, starting in our cosmos, because there's a lot of holes in evolutionary theory. 
And, um, and there are some who aren't even Christians or Bible believers that are saying that there's evidence for a younger earth. And they're out there and there's brilliant thinkers. Um, I worry that science has become just like everything else, so politicized. You know, they've been doing that with science as far as religious issues for millennia now. Um, but I think science has become very politicized, you know, whether we're talking about global warming or even wearing masks. Uh, like, you know, and everybody quotes science, science, science. And, and the angrier people are quoting science when there's, you know, a lot of doctors and scientists are saying, uh, we don't see it. Now, if you're a doctor or a scientist and you go against the politically correct answer about masks or global warming or any of that stuff, you will be defunded. You will be erased. You will be canceled. You will be fired from your job. And there's a huge financial um, temptation to just kind of jump glibly and naively on board with so-called science. The Bible even says that that's what happened, that there'd be such things as science in the last days that's falsely so-called. And we're seeing that uh, unravel uh, exponentially, I believe, today. So that's something that we should be very cautious of. You know what's interesting about um, some of the science, so-called, behind like the mask wearing and, um, and also uh, even the whole coronavirus thing? Um, is I have, uh, we have a lot of wonderful physicians, I'm not gonna name them, uh, but in our congregation. And what's interesting is the ones that I've talked to, um, they're all saying that, that um, there's so much that's politicized about this coronavirus and the mask wearing that uh, it's painful. And I say, well, why aren't physicians standing up and shouting from the rooftops? And the answer is you lose your job. You'll be excluded, you'll be uh, banished from the medical field. Um, there's this huge pressure uh, and it puts you in a really bad light. Um, and, uh, but, and, and yet here's the, some of these great doctors and physicians that I know, um, they're saying that not only do they believe that, but every doctor that they know and all the doctors around them that are working in, the, in their same you know, field or that they went to medical school with, that they're all kind of in agreement that there's so much of this that is being politicized and the numbers are being tweaked. And it makes me just sad that we, you know, cause I love science. I love math. I love the, the uh, probabilities. I love uh, trying to really discern things. I think the Lord created science, but as soon as science becomes this agenda and politicized, we, we have no science. We have no real science. Um, some of the greatest scientists in the world were believers. Um, Isaac Newton was Discover Magazine's top rated scientist. Um, and he was a massive believer in the Bible. And that's where he came to uh, find some, you know, beginning points to learn some of the things that he so brilliantly came up with, started with the scripture, ended with provable science. And I love that about that. So the reason, you know, we have to be careful about the gap theory is it kind of ignores the evidence for a young earth. Um, and um, it also does something that I'm a little uncomfortable with, and that is, it, you know, the gap theory uh, that, you know, Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-2, there's maybe thousands of years between, or millions of years, as some might even say. Um, it puts death, disease, suffering before the fall of man, contrary to Scripture. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, therefore, even as the one man, uh, through, pardon me, one man, Adam, sin, entered the world, and death by sin. So death passed on all men inasmuch as we have sinned. So <clears throat> we know that Adam and his rebellion, sin, death and corruption, disease, bloodshed, suffering, all that was brought into the earth by man's sin. So the gap theory sort of brings death and disease and destruction before Adam's sin. So I have a bit of a problem with that. Um, uh, you know, uh, note also that there could not have been a race of men before Adam that died in Lucifer's flood because 1 Corinthians 15, 45 tells us that Adam was the first man. So I don't believe that there were other men before, uh, you know, Adam and Eve. Um, it's inconsistent that God, um, also another reason the gap theory I'm troubled with is it's a little bit inconsistent with the literal that everything God created, he did it in six days. And I just love taking the Bible literally. I just am a literalist. If the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, um, I'm good with that. Um, by the way, uh, people forget this scripture, Exodus chapter 20, right there in the middle of the 10 commandments. God sort of tucks away this little verse and he says in Exodus 20, 11, he says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, 
the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Thus, the creation of the heaven and the earth, Genesis 1.1, uh, and the sea and all that is in them, the rest of it was, was completed in six days. I just take that at face value. So, um, there, you know, where is their time really for the gap theory? So I, I'm not totally dismissing the gap theory. I just don't really uh, follow along with it just because I have some real problems with other scripture. So what could have happened? Maybe the devastation that came was the fall of Satan. And it was just simply that. Uh, the earth became void and without form and darkness was on the earth. Maybe that's right there at the beginning, before there was even oceans and seas and mountains that Lucifer, some have made the argument that the darkness was the deep or the, um, the, the abuso. And there seems to be some kind of a chamber, a holding chamber that God has created where um, uh, that might have been when that was part of cre the creation of God is it was a place for Satan and his demons. And if you know the fall of Satan and his binding up and his future, the Abuso is part of that. It's a place that God created for Satan. Uh, it's temporary. Ultimately, he ends up in Gehenna, which is the fires of hell. But uh, kind of crazy to think about all this stuff. So Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, sort of stirs up a bee's nest a little bit when it says the Lord created it not in vain or, uh, you know, desolation. Um, and so they, some people see a contradiction there. Some people see a, that it, was, it wasn't created desolate, it became desolate, so no contradiction. Others say, no, it was, um, the Lord created it not in vain, but there's something that happened between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, and that would be the fall of Satan. So there's different theories, not a huge deal, but if you are one who likes to, you know, break these things down and nail these down, uh, there's plenty to read and look up about this. That's what Isaiah uh, 45, 18 does for us there. Well, verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Everything that God declares, and you and I can just be sure, it's whatever he declares in his word, is righteousness, and everything that he says is right. There's nothing wrong about the Bible. Man, if you um, are good with that, then you're gonna be good. If, if you can just say, I believe the Bible, that there's something so freeing about just submitting and saying, you know what, as I've searched the scripture now, if you're one who doesn't believe in the Bible and you've said, well, I've sort of read the Bible, um, I would challenge you to give an honest read to the Bible. Um, a lot of people claim, I'm, I'm always shocked. Yeah, I know the Bible. I went to Sunday school when I was a kid or I even taught Sunday school. I get this one. I went to seminary. I hear that all the time. People say, I went to seminary, kind of claiming that they've studied the Bible through and through, which is impossible. The Bible is a deep, deep pool that no one can, you know, plunge all the way down into the depths. Um, but an honest read, uh, you, there's too much about the Bible that's miraculous and supernatural to just dismiss it as a work of literature. And there are many who do that, and usually they are those who haven't really read the Bible or just have given sort of a dismissive, quick breeze through a light reading of the Bible. But um, when you start really giving an honest look at it, and I've spent really much of my life searching the Bible. I love the scriptures, I love the Bible. Um, since I was a little kid, I've taught the Bible. I taught the Bible starting when I was 12 years old. Um, not that I'm, I mean, I'm not gonna claim to be a Bible expert, but I do, I've spent a lot of years in the scriptures and I've not only found them to be, uh, you know, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, I've found them also to be miraculous in its prophetic nature. Um, it withstands all the archeological scrutiny. Um, you know, there's so many things in history that are just proved as false, uh, ancient works of history. Um, there's so, many, so much that, you know, that you could just say, well, this archeological dig sort of, sort of totally, reverses all the things the Bible ever said. But there's nothing like that. The things that actually have happened is all the digs that they've done throughout the ages of archeological you know, uh, work, it's only proven the Bible to be accurate. It's archeological uh, integrity, it's prophetic uh, uh, you know, perfection of how God tells the beginning from the end. Um, man, we can talk about how it has changed millions and millions of people's lives. 
It claims to be living and powerful. And if you're around the Bible that long, you'll start to see, wow, the Bible isn't just a work of literature. And I would challenge you, if you're one who says, ah, you guys believe the Bible, but I just think it's full of errors and contradiction. Well, that's what Satan's been saying through the college professors for decades now. But if you give an honest look, apart from all those that are trying to tear the Bible down, which they'll never be successful in that, the word of God remains and will remain. When Christ returns, it says he's gonna come with a sword proceeding out of his mouth. That's an ugly image. Well, it's not an image that you should paint. It's an image that you should think about. That is the sword is the double-edged sword of God's word. And when he comes, when he rules and reigns on this earth, it'll be that double-edged sword that's gonna be indict the indictment against humanity. So the idea of being uh, opposed to God's word, you're gonna be on the wrong side of things. Um, I would take a careful and honest look. There's a reason the Bible has withstood centuries, millennia of people trying to destroy it. And yet it remains the top selling book of all the world for all of history for all time. And it always will be because it's not just a book. Um, so when it says here, you know, in this verse that the Lord's word is righteous and it's truth and it's right. Man, the Lord doesn't just uh, give his word for no other reason, just, you know, um, now, he also says, I said not to the seed of Jacob, that's the Jews, to seek me in vain. In other words, why should we seek God? Um, it's just a waste of time. Well, the Lord says, no, it isn't. Um, have you ever felt like that? Some, some of you, and, and this is a tricky thing because do I believe in the sovereignty of God? Absolutely. But if you're really uh, a staunch uh, supporter of God's sovereignty, which we don't have to support that, it's, that's just what it is. One of the, the dilemmas that some people go through is then why should we even pray? If God knows the way it's gonna shake out and we have no uh, influence over the sovereignty of God, then why should we even pray? Um, why should we even wonder about what's gonna happen? It's just gonna happen. Whatever God's gonna do, whatever. And we can take this passive view uh, about God. But here our verse tells us right here, seek ye me in vain? No, um, the Lord wants us to seek him. And the truth is, I, I believe we should do that no matter what you believe about the sovereignty of God, we should see, seek him just because Jesus told us to. Jesus told us, you know, in chapter six, verse 33 of Matthew. Matthew six thirty-three. but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew chapter seven, verse seven, it declares this, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. The Lord wants us to seek him, to knock, to ask, to uh, press in, well, Brett, if God's already determined everything, why should I do that? Don't know, but God says you're supposed to do it. And there's little hints in the scriptures that I believe sort of point to our need um, really to do that. Um, do you remember the story, and this is a controversial story where there, um, the children of Israel were chiding against Moses and against the Lord. Oh, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. And the Lord was, his wrath was upon the people. And he says, Moses, step aside. I'm going to destroy this people and I'll make of you, Mo, a mighty nation. Now, if I'm Moses, I'd be like, okay, Lord. And I'd walk away and say, okay, fry him, Lord, whatever. And make of me. Kids won't sing, Father Abraham had many sons. They'll sing, Father Moses had many sons. Like Moses had the opportunity to be the father of a mighty nation from that day forward. But something happened there in that story, it's interesting. So God says, yeah, Moses, step aside, I'm gonna destroy these people, make of you a mighty nation. But Moses says, not so, Lord. And Moses begins to plead with the Lord and pray. And he says, Lord, you have promised this people that you, would, you had a covenant with them. Lord, you have said you were gonna bring them uh, into a land you know, flowing with milk and honey. And you know, Moses kind of reminds the Lord, not that the Lord ever forgot, but he seeks the Lord and, and, and you say, well, Brett, what happened next? Well, then God says, and God, and this is the wording that's tricky, and God repented of the evil that he was gonna do to the children of Israel. You say, Brett, did God change his mind? God never changes. Um, it's true, God never changes. So it says that he repented. Now, the word repented doesn't mean like, oh man, I'm so sorry, I really blew it. That's not the word there for, for what God did. The idea of the word there is to do an about face. God's moving this direction, and then he does about face and he goes back this direction. What direction was he going? I'm gonna destroy the children of Israel. Moses prays for the people and God does an about face and goes the other direction. Was that God changing? No, 
Well, that sounds like change to me. Here's the thing you have to remember. Who put it in the heart of Moses to pray on behalf of the people of Israel? Could it have, it could be just this simple, that God knew that he was working within Moses a heart of compassion and love for the people of Israel. God knew that it would take that kind of a shock to Moses to, to get him to a place where he'd say, Lord, no way. You, you can't do this because of your word and because of your promise. And it's almost like, have you, ever, you parents know what this is like. Uh, have you ever as a parent said you were gonna do something to your kids because of their bad behavior, but you never really intended on fully doing that. Um, but you were gonna, you, just, you wanted to shock them into a little bit like, wow, that's the possibility that that could happen. Um, but as, as a parent, we're flawed and all that stuff. But God, could it have been that God wanted to work within Moses, that heart to you know, intercede on behalf of the people? So it's a tricky bit of d- teaching when it comes to God, but in a sense that shows us the model of why we should seek the Lord. It's, you know, seeking God in prayer is not as much to move the hand of God, but it's to change the heart of man. There's value in seeking the Lord. And the Lord says, I have not chosen you, Israel, to seek me in vain. There's a reason that you're supposed to seek me. So if you're, uh, uh, you know, nestled comfortably in your bed of sovereignty, God's sovereignty, that's great. I love that because it's true. But don't dismiss seeking God and, and prayer and intercession Uh, That's what some of my big sovereignty fans are uh, perhaps maybe negligent in, is the idea of seeking, praying, asking. Another one that's kind of tricky on that, by the way, is evangelism. Well, if people are going to be saved, God knows who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, so why are we even busy out being missionaries? And I've noticed there's this temptation for people that rest solely in the sovereignty of God, which is true, God's sovereign. But if God's sovereign, why should we be missionaries? Uh, they, They don't see how that works, but all I know is this. The Lord tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel and that he wants us to see people converted to Christ, born again. And that's our job. That's that's the one big mandate we've been given by God, uh, the great commission. So it's it's a tricky thing. I think it's one of those things that goes beyond our brain or our capacity to fully understand. But nonetheless, here in verse 19 says, I have not had you seek me, the Jews and Christians today, in vain. Uh, I declare righteousness. So interesting discussions. This book of Isaiah is chock full of this. We could spend a lot of time, but we need to move forward. It goes on in verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image. And pray unto a God that that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them who take counsel together, who hath declared this from ancient time, who hath told it from that time, have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a savior. There is none beside me. I love how God just says, there's nobody can do what I can do. Nobody can speak the future like I do. Only God knows the prophecy. But I love how the... the um, two first pieces of the Holy Trinity are mentioned. He says, um, I'm, I'm the only God. I'm, there's no God except for me, a just God and a savior. How can that be true if there's no God, uh, but there is God and a savior? Well, that's God the Father, God the Son. And then the third part would be the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Verse 25 says there's gonna come a time where in the Lord all of Israel will be justified and shall glory. What is that all about? That's Romans 11:25 talks about there's coming a time in the future where the Jews who largely blindness in part has happened to the Jews about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But there's coming a time after the rapture of the church and during the tribulation period that the Jews will have their eyes opened and they'll see. And it says there in Romans 11, 20, all of Israel will be saved. That's what that verse is talking about. 
But before that, it talks about salvation in general. And it just says, look, we, we looked at this on Sunday. And if you weren't um, able to join us uh, either here on the campus or online, uh, I would recommend that you pick up that uh, study online. Uh, you go to our YouTube channel or, or our website because I think that what I shared on Sunday might just be one of the most important teachings that I've given maybe ever. <laughs> I think it's so important in the days that we're living. Um, look unto the Lord and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. What a tricky day we live. You know, um, <clears throat> there's, there's this tricky thing about what is the true gospel. And it's a little bit hard to sort through as you get into the world in this life. Right now, as the Republican National Convention happens, um, every other speaker is talking about the Bible and about Jesus and God. And that does make me happy to hear people talk about Jesus and the scriptures and salvation. Totally glad about that. Um, but at the same time, I'm a, I'm a little cautious because there is sort of a worldview that a Christian is someone who talks about the Bible. Or, um, a, you know, and I'm not knocking what those people are saying or doing. I really am not. But I am saying we need to also discern what is the true gospel. And it's not to elect a Christian president or a nice president or any of that. It has nothing to do with electing a president. Being a Christian is this, you're a sinner and you need to be saved from your sins. Death and hell is your future. That's what the Bible teaches. But the gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ and Christ alone, not by your works, not by any deeds you do, but by the grace of God through faith, you're saved, not of your works, lest any man should boast, not of yourselves, it's a free gift. Now, all that said, you accept Jesus Christ, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. Um, so there are two things that we need to keep separate, and that is salvation and the message of salvation and what that's all about. That should be our number one point. We should be all about that. All the other stuff that we talk about um, can be nice things, but don't, don't replace um, what we know the gospel to be with political activism or doing uh, political deeds, or trying to you know, um, uh, fix all the wrongs of, of, of the world, you know, and having more of a social gospel. That's not a gospel at, at all. And that's kind of what we talked about on Sunday. Really would recommend that you listen to that. And especially as we as a church are um, moving more in a direction of saying that we believe God has, has called us to something, to do something that's a little bit of a higher calling than what, what perhaps the state of Oregon is calling us to do. And this gets into tricky stuff because uh, while atheists, I've never really wanted to be any political church or into politics, and I'm not uh, as far as the church goes, um, but I am into saying, what does the Bible tell us to do? And uh, that's a non-negotiable. Um, and so that, that becomes important. So interesting days, you know, some people think they're Christians because they're Americans or they're Republican or because of this or that. That's not what makes you a Christian. Um, but a Christian is one who believes in the true gospel. That's what we talked about on um, Sunday. So don't be duped. Uh, tricky times as, as we get our definitions of terms sort of mixed up and flip-flopped and everything else. Be careful. Well, chapter 46, here Isaiah goes over uh, the false gods of Babylon. Um, and uh, we start with Bel and Nebo. Bel is probably another name for Baal or Baal, depending on how you say Baal. Um, but it starts off in verse one. Bel boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden and they are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Here the Lord starts off saying that um, these gods are a heavy dead weight for you and your life. And they're just burdening you down as you carry your golden idols of Baal and Nebo. Baal, of course, was the chief Babylonian deity. Um, Nebo was one of their gods that dealt with um, learning, intellect, letters. Um, it was sort of an intellectual god. It cracks me up for every Old Testament you know, idol. There, there's a, there's a, a modern day uh, uh, philosophy or worldview. So if you're into Baal, you know, the chief Babylonian deity that dealt with prosperity and all that, 
we're into prosperity. There's even people that teach that Christianity is prosperity. We talked about that on Sunday, how there's this prosperity gospel that's not a gospel at all. God did not save you to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, and finding the better you. Some people think that's what a Christian is, finding the better you, no. But that's, that's like an idolatry, uh, you know, making yourself. Whenever you have a religion or a church saying it's all about you and how you feel and you, 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 we're missing the point. It's all about Jesus Christ, Christ alone. Um, it can be a form of idolatry, material possessions, prosperity, Baal, or the God of intellect, Nebo, um, and letter writing and academia. We have a whole worship system of academia today that tr sort of um, you know, eclipses truth. And it's so sad to see people duped all the time. So it leads them into captivity. Now, what's interesting is Christians were the free ones. Don't let people get this tweaked out. They'll say, you Christians are in you know, captivity. You can't do this and you can't do that. No, we're the free ones. The people that worship their gods of sexuality or their gods of prosperity or academia or all that stuff, they're the ones, according to the scriptures, that are burdened and they've gone into captivity and they're heavy laden with their own sins. Um, Christians are the freest people I know. It's so great to see all those folks that get saved through the ministry here at Athey Creek. I, I say that humbly. Uh, I can't believe the Lord uses a goofball like me. Um, but uh, the, the truth is the Lord uses the Athey Creek staff and this goofy warehouse that I'm sitting in and just this property that we have. And the, uh, we have this great team of people, the staff and leadership that are just working hard. And we all crack up because the Lord uses us. That's amazing. We, we, we're thankful for that. We're thankful because when we see people who've been in bondage to sin and then they come to the light of Jesus Christ and accept and are, and are born again and are saved. Man, you just see this heavy burden lifted off the shoulders of people. And uh, that's one of the most uh, blessed things that we get to experience. I think probably one of my favorite things of ministry is baptism. You can just see it. There's something that's hard to miss uh, when you baptize a person and they come out of that water, they've left their old sins that here, like the Bible says, they've burdened them down dragged them into captivity. But you baptize a Christian and they realize their sins are forgiven and the Lord lo loves them, is not mad at them, is not disappointed in them, but he forgives them. And he says, enter in thou good and faithful servant. That's such a blessing to be a part of that. Man, God forbid that your church, if you're going to a church that doesn't preach the gospel, they're not seeing souls saved, get out of that church. Go where people are getting saved. Go to a place, because that's the thing we're supposed to be doing. Sharing the gospel, seeing lives changed and transformed. Not the better you, or finding the, awakening the giant within, or healthy and, and you know, all this stuff. That's not what it is. People are missing, sad to say, so many people are missing the joy of being a part of a fellowship where you see souls saved. And that's so important. So, here, that's where Isaiah the prophet is saying, the Babylonians, while God used them to hold the children of Israel in captivity or will use them for that, he's basically saying, you guys are going down too. You're going down. After you hold the Jews in captivity, you're gonna kind of pay a price for that. Uh, isn't that interesting? He goes on in verse three, chapter 46, verse three. Hearken unto me. By the way, remember how many times I told you the Bible in Isaiah says, listen, listen, listen. Hearken unto me, verse three. Um, chapter 46, verse 12, uh, hearken unto me. Uh, 47, verse eight, therefore hear now this. Remember all that that I went through? Remember, Isaiah said, listen, you gotta tune in here. And also he's saying, look, take a look, look, look. Like he said in verse uh, 22 of chapter 45, look and listen. Um, too many people are not willing to do that. Take the time to look and listen to what God has to say. So he says, verse three, hearken unto me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. And even your old age, I am he, and even to hoar hairs or gray hairs will I carry you. I have made and I will bear. Um, even I will carry and deliver you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? and compare me that we may be like. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and maketh he it a God. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon their shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place 
and he standeth from his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry to him, yet he cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. False gods, I'm, the Lord says, I'm the God who gave birth to you as a nation. I'm the one who's gonna keep you till your gray hairs and you guys, uh, we're gonna follow these fake gods. It reminds me of Psalm 115, verse four. Their idols are of silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Mouths have they, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak their, uh, through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusts them. This is a crack up. God says they're deaf, dumb, unable to do anything, and you're just like them. <laughs> the person that's into idolatry, God says, you're gonna be useless and able to do nothing. <clears throat> but the person that worships and believes the true and living God, the Lord is able to save him out of his trouble. Verse eight, remember this and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted that are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Powerful, powerful section of scripture. We'll, we'll go to verse 10 in our second here, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done. But he calls a ravenous bird from the east, a man that executes counsel. That's talking again about chapter 44 and 45, Cyrus the Great that would come. Uh, God says, I have declared it before it even has happened. And I'm gonna use it to, uh, you know, for my purpose. And then he says, listen, verse 12 and 13, um, that are far from righteousness. And that's you and me, and that's the Jews. We're all far from righteousness. But he says, but I will bring near my righteousness. See, that's such a great thing. I mean, this, this is like reading the book of Romans here in Isaiah, where he says, we're not saved by our righteousness. We're far from that. We have no righteousness. The Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. But his righteousness will not tarry or wait. But it will, it, he says, I will bring near my righteousness. And that's how you're saved, I'm saved. God doesn't just wink at your sin and say, you're forgiven. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, who never knew sin, died on the cross for your sin, and his righteousness is what gives you righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness. I did a teaching on, on that called imputed righteousness. And look it up, uh, and that's such a key doctrine to understand how we're declared righteous. And it's not by our good deeds, uh, uh, which is really in opposition to a lot of false religion. And, and maybe even some religion that borders and teeters on truth, but they still wanna, drag works into the equation, that you're saved by your works. It's just not the case. You're saved by his righteousness and his righteousness alone. Now, this thing where he predicts this, the coming righteousness of God, Jesus, the coming of Cyrus the Great, prophecy, he says, I, the Lord, I'm, I'm the only one that declares the beginning from the end. Um, and that's why I would suggest, that, you know, that you don't ever forsake Bible prophecy. There's a temptation and, and there's a movement in modern day churches today to say, oh, you guys that are into prophecy, you know, whatever, it's all gonna pan out. And by the way, the sovereignty guys, the, the ones who are, you know, which I'm a sovereignty guy, but if that's all you're into, prophecy is like, yeah, it's all gonna pan out. I'm a pan, <clears throat> you know, pan-tribber or, <clears throat> you know, pre-trib, post-trib, ah-mill, mill what are you? Well, some people say, I'm just gonna be into the pan theory <clears throat> because it's all gonna pan out. Stupid. That's just saying, <clears throat> I dismiss the whole one-fourth of the Bible that deals with Bible prophecy. And um, I would not wish that <clears throat> upon anybody. Just a second. <clears throat> okay, I'm back, theoretically. <laughs> well, I love the fact that God, in his word, gives us prophecy. And, and if one thing that you, if, if you're dismissing one-fourth of the Bible, saying, whatever, God's gonna pan it all out, 
then you're, you're, you're taking away from the congregation or from the people something that really, in, in, you know, what, is, what does the word do? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you're taking out one fourth of the word of God and not preaching or into Bible prophecy, then you're taking away one fourth of the power of the word of God that produces great faith. Prophecy does that. That's one of the, 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 the things about scripture that's just so important. And uh, I would recommend that people, uh, even though it's maybe becoming less popular seemingly right now with churches, get back into the word and, and look up prophecy. And um, you know, there's different opinions within the church of Jesus Christ, how it's all gonna shake out, but that's okay. Uh, it, I'd rather you be even searching the scripture, trying to figure it out, than have to necessarily agree with me on what I believe of Bible prophecy. But be searching the scriptures. Uh, don't, don't take out one-fourth of the Bible. This is what God does. He declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. I love that. Well, let's tackle chapter 47. It's a shorter little chapter here, 15 verses. Um, we'll we'll uh, finish that tonight. He says, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin, daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground, there is no throne. O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. <clears throat> okay, so we're talking about a woman, a virgin, daughter of Babylon. Who's that? Well, this would be a, t a tricky chapter to know what in the world it's talking about until you, you let the best commentary on the Bible uh, enlighten you. What's the best commentary on the Bible? The Bible. Um, and you see in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we read about, and this is Bible prophecy. This is stuff that a lot of churches won't talk about because it's Bible prophecy. Um, the whore of Babylon. Now you see, Brett, that's why we don't like talking about, who wants to talk about a whore of Babylon? This is gross stuff. Um, yeah, but it's just part of the Bible. You see, the context of Isaiah is Babylon. Now he's talking about this daughter of Babylon that's, that's, um, that she's no longer called delicate. What, what's the deal with this? Babylon was sort of famous for her delicacies. Um, she was powerful, but elegant. Um, you know, Babylon was a beautiful, godless, but had sort of this, you might say, if you could almost picture a classy delicacy uh, demeanor in ancient times. It would eventually fall, but interesting, the Bible talks about how Babylon wasn't just a city, it was more of a uh, worldview and a philosophy. So when you get to the book of Revelation, it talks about how in the tribulation period, the rise of Babylon would happen. Now, boy, we could debate, and I have, and we've talked about, is Babylon more literal, a literal city that's gonna you know, sort of be rebuilt? You know, it was interesting when Saddam Hussein was in power, um, he was trying to rebuild Babylon. Um, and he even called himself, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And he brought back some of the standards of the ancient Babylonians, like the lion and the flag and all that. But, you know, he was outed uh, and taken out by the United States military. And eventually he was hung by the neck and died. So there's sort of ruins of modern day Babylon that he was trying to rebuild. And it's just these big empty palaces that kind of sit around. We have people in Athey Creek that's been in those palaces because they were in the military during this desert storm. They had to take those um, palaces and they had to go through those buildings and clear them. <laughs> and uh, he was spending millions of dollars on, on the reconstructing of ancient Babylon. And then there's a big discussion, will, will Babylon be in the last days in, this, in the tribulation period built, become a literal city? Um, well, we'll talk about that further, probably when we get into uh, some, some other prophecies that are in the future. But in Revelation 17 and 18, we have the, the two Babylons. There's religious Babylon and there's economic Babylon. Whether it's a literal city or not, I'm not gonna fight that fight tonight, but for sure, there's a worldview and a world philosophy. Uh, one is economic, one is religious. The economic Babylon has to do with the mark of the beast, where there's no one who will buy or sell uh, except for this antichrist you know, system. And it's gonna be an economic uh, power um, that's gonna come down during the tribulation period. But the second piece of that is a religious Babylon. After the rapture of the church, what's gonna be left of religion? I don't know if you've noticed, but one of the, the, to me, the signs of the times that we're living is this ecumenical movement that has been happening for the last 
several decades pretty radically for a long time, maybe longer than that. But, but man, it's just become sort of rampant. And you see the Pope mingling with the Muslims and the Imams. You see, um, you know, even evangelical uh, wackos like Kenneth, Kenneth Copeland hanging out with Catholic bishops and stuff. And they're all saying, hey, we're all one and, you know, we are the world and it's a good thing we're all people of the same faith, basically. And, you know, there's this, there's this sort of joining of religious faith. And now, the funny thing is I've noticed even Bible-believing Christians sometimes, go, oh, that's so wonderful. We're so glad that people are circling around Jesus and Christians and be careful. Um, you know, the Lord is true and righteous and he explains that there's gonna be a false religious system so when the rapture of the church, now, and I'm not gonna say who the true church is um, as much as whoever really believes that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you accept, believe, and confess with your mouth, repent of your sins. You, we've talked about salvation. Anybody who's done that, they're gonna be raptured and taken up. Whatever's left of the Catholic church, of the evangelical church, the so-called Christian church, whatever's left of Islam, whatever's left of Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and uh, you know, the um, various religious systems, rather, whatever's left after the rapture, they're all part of a false religious system. And there's gonna be a power that's gonna join all together after the rapture of the church. And, and man, you can see how it happened. Like it really wouldn't take much for that to happen right now, for the world to sort of gather together religiously. So when I see pastors starting to embrace Islam, I was shocked years ago when Dr. Schuler who was one of my grand my grandparents went to that church for a long time, um, which uh, his teaching was a little whacked, but it got really whacked um, when he made this statement on uh, what show was that the uh, Bill Maher show. Maher said, "Do you really believe the Bible and take it literally?" And he said, "I read the Bible like I eat fish." He said, "I eat the meat, but I spit out the bones." Um, man, there are no bones about it. The Bible is true, and there's nothing to spit out. But because he spits out parts of the Bible, he also made this statement. He said, if, my, if I died and 100 years later came back and found out my congregation to be Muslim, I would be truly blessed. That's what he said. So he was part of this ecumenical movement, claiming to be a Christian, but saying Islam is another faith that's just as good as being a Christian. Um, totally false. Run from that kind of teaching. Uh, don't be a we are the world Christian. That's speaking into what is called the whore of Babylon. That's what it's called when you read Revelation chapter 18. Um, and so what I want you to do is think about that as we read this chapter um, and it'll start to make sense. And maybe we'll go ahead uh, if we have time and look at that Revelation 18 uh, uh, mystery Babylon religion. So talk about this woman who was once called tender and delicate, now is no longer called that. Verse two, take the millstones and grind meal, uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not meet thee as a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel. Sit thou silent and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called Lady of the Kingdoms. I was wroth with my people. I have polluted mine inheritance and given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy. Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke. And thou saidst, I shall be a lady forever. So that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst thou remember the latter end of it. Speaking about the Jews, the Jews were treated badly by Babylon just after Isaiah's time, but they would be treated by religious and economic Babylon in the tribulation period. It's a dual fulfillment of prophecy of the woman that rides the beast or the woman of Babylon. Verse eight, therefore hear now this, that thou art given to pleasures that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thy heart, I am, and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood, and they shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thy enchantments. In one day, this religious Babylon, the woman that rides the beast. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Would you turn to Revelation 18, the book of Revelation, 
why you're turning to Revelation. If you, if you don't want to be a tourist, don't call it Revelations. <laughs> um, it's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. The Revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ to John the Apostle. Um, just, just a heads up. Uh, I always hear people say, oh, the book of Revelations. Um, no, it's the book of Revelation. Revelation 18. So if you have an S on your newer translation, you can cross that out. <laughs> Not a huge deal, but just, uh, just if you don't want to be a tourist. Um, Revelation 18, verse 4. Um, speaking of this whole thing. Um, it says in Revelation 18, 4, it says, And I heard another voice come from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that be not partaker of her sins, and that ye receive not her plagues, for her sins have reached unto heaven. And God hath remembered her iniquities, reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled, um, filled her to double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she said in her heart, I sit a queen and I'm no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall utterly be burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. Same language of Isaiah that she would not, she, that in one day she'd go down uh, and one day she'd be widowed. Revelation chapter 17 talks about the woman who rides the beast. So those two chapters, if you want to familiarize yourself with that, you can listen to our teaching of Revelation 17 and 18, where we talk about the woman who rides the beast, the, the, the whore of Babylon, that which is being talked about by Isaiah, uh, chapter 47. Well, he goes on, where were we? Let's see, verse uh, 10 of our chapter 47. We're almost done. It says in verse 10, for thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, none seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath per perverted thee. And thou hast said in thy heart, I am, and there is none else beside me. Again, this is what she said in the book of Revelation. Does that sound familiar? Plus, we read this two Sundays ago, and this was our text. Uh, we considered the Christian who thinks this way, but also the atheist who has this view that it's their own wisdom and their knowledge, but that's what perverts them. And so we talked about that two Sundays ago, verse uh, 10. Verse 11, therefore shall evil come upon thee, thou, thou shalt not know from whence it riseth, and mischief shall fall upon thee, thou shalt not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. Stand now with thine enchantments, and with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast labored from thy youth. If so be thou, uh, shalt be thou able to profit, if so be thou mayest prevail. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from the things that shall come upon thee. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before. This, this idea of the comfort and the so-called wisdom of the Chaldean astrologers, soothsayers, prognosticators, <laughs> their, their power, their help is going to come to nothing during that time, both when Babylon would be destroyed during, after Isaiah's time, but also in the uh, Revelation 17 and 18 time. Nothing will help them. Verse 15, thus shall they be unto thee with whom thou hast labored, even thy merchants from thy youth. They shall wander everyone to his corner. None shall save thee. You don't want to be a part of the Babylonian religious or economic system. Uh, it's alive and well today. It's there doing its thing and it's percolating just as the rapture of the church could happen, I think, at any, any moment. It really could. But when that happens, mystery Babylon's going to come to ri rise uh, politically, economically, spiritually. It's going to happen. But no one's going to help her during that time when the wrath of God is poured out upon her. But that's a positive note to leave on. It is when you realize that's what's gonna happen. But isn't it wonderful that the Lord back in chapter 45, verse 22 tells us, look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is none else. People that say, well, if God is love, he would save the world. He, he has, and he's offered everyone salvation. Well, well, I don't think bad things should happen to good people. There are no good people, we're all bad. 
So bad things are gonna happen. That's just the way it is. But God is good. And he's so good that he says, look unto me and be saved. It reminds me of Numbers, you know, that story in Numbers chapter 21, verse eight, where it talks about, um, you know, the little fiery serpents, the people were complaining against the Lord and the Lord sent fiery serpents. Everybody's gonna die, just like in chapter 47. Everybody's gonna die. That's bit by these thousands of these little red snakes biting people. But if you remember, Moses was told by God to make a pole and put a brass serpent on that pole. And anyone that looks at the brass serpent on the pole would live. And that's what the message was, look and live. How simple could it be? If you're bit by the sin of the snake sin, the little red sin snake, look and live. It's that simple, not a hard thing. And so it says there that the, um, Jesus then was talking about this in John chapter three. He says, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too the son of man must be lifted up. And that, that idea is that was a picture of the cross. And anyone who looks to the cross of Jesus Christ will live. Anyone who's against God, anyone who's rejecting the Bible and the word of God, they're not gonna live. They're gonna be destroyed and end up in fire of hell. A conscience uh, pardon me, a, con a conscious uh, ex existence for eternity. And well, but that, that's too bad. According to God, it's not. I don't like it. Who cares? But God says he loves you so much that he would that you not perish, but have everlasting life. We have an important message, folks, to share to people in these dark days. And sadly, our Christian message is being somewhat diluted by not the true gospel, but a, a thing that sort of sounds like the gospel, kind of appears like the gospel. Don't let people get away with that. Let's keep the gospel right there at the forefront. You're a sinner, you need to be saved. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one righteous, not even one. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Anyone who confesses with their mouth, believes in their heart, the Lord Jesus, they will be saved. Repenting of your sin. So may the Lord give us wisdom as we consider these prophecies, the Lord speaking the beginning from the end. What a powerful book. In Jesus' name, let's pray. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Once again, it's so good to be able to get in scripture and have our faith strengthened, Lord, faith coming by hearing and hearing by your word. And how I pray tonight that your people would be strengthened, that faith would be lifted, that people would be encouraged tonight as we close up our Bibles May we have your word in our hearts, meditating on it day and night. In Jesus' name, amen.